Good morning, church. If you're visiting with us, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's been my privilege to uh, be a pastor here for the last eight years or so, something like that, and and um, privileged to preach through Christmas. Uh, you may um, not understand this, but for preachers, Christmas is some of the hardest time to preach because we have a limited amount of material to preach about. And once you've preached for 22 years like I have, you kind of preach through it all, and you go, well, go back and preach it again and all that kind of stuff. So it's a poses a little bit of a dilemma for a pastor. So I want to jump into a passage this morning that's not um, traditionally thought to be part of the Christmas story, but I'm not preaching the Christmas story to you this morning. The story of Christmas is marvelous and grand, and we talk about wise men and shepherds and mangers and uh, no room in the inn and all that kind of stuff, and that's grand and good, and it, not putting that down at all, but it's the story of Christmas and what I want to hit this morning is about the theology of Christmas. And some of you, as soon as you hear the word theology, you may like to turn that off and that's boring and old and all that kind of stuff. But uh, if you think about it, theology is nothing more than the study of God. And people will say, well, I'm no theologian, but they get ready to say something about God, which proves that they're in some way a theologian in and of themselves. Theology is really, really important because theology is what we think and our behavior is determined by what we think. And uh, if we have poor theology, then we'll have poor behavior in our lives. So there's nothing more practical than theology. And that's what my theology professors at Asbury Seminary tried to, to drill into me. And I preach theology every single Sunday. Don't call it that. But uh, there's teaching deep theology, hopefully, in every single message. Um, poor theology usually means poor working out of our Christian life in some way. Facebook is one of the best places that you can find poor theology. And on, on Facebook, you can find things um, every now and then you'll find things like somebody will say, well, everything happens for a reason. Now that sounds very spiritual. And that sounds like uh, that, you know, I'm, you're just saying God is in control. And what you're basically saying, usually when people say that, people are saying, well, something bad has happened, but everything happens for a reason. Well, it's not real great theology because I don't know about your life, but in my life, 99 out of 100 bad things that happened to me because I made a lousy choice, okay? Don't lay it on God, okay? Just because I made a really bad choice. And sometimes we want to say, well, I, you know, I fell into this ditch or I made this left turn. I shouldn't have gone here and all this kind of stuff. Well, everything happens for a reason. Well, a lot of the bad things that happened in my life have happened for a reason. And that reason was my bad choice. It had nothing to do with God was trying to steer me in some direction. I just made a, a lousy choice. Like I told you before, the Israelites who took 40 years to basically march around in a circle, I believe with all my heart, God wanted them to go straight through. He just wanted them to go straight through. But they made a whole bunch of lousy choices. And that's what the whole book of Exodus is, tells us about their lousy choices. So Facebook is, has a plethora of bad theology. And let me talk just a little bit about some good theology, and especially on the theology of Christmas. The passage that I'm using for an anchor passage this morning is not at all a Christmas passage. It's not found in the Christmas story and all that kind of stuff. It's actually found in a passage where Paul is talking about giving. He's actually commending and saying the Macedonian church is doing a really good job on giving. And when he's thinking about giving, he immediately goes 
to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave everything that he could possibly give at Christmas time. And that's what happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And that's where we're going to launch from here this morning. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sakes, he became, some translations say our, some say your. For I, I learned it with our. For our sakes, he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Now there is no more of a Christmas statement in all of God's word than that one. That, that, there's a, that's a whole lot more Christmas in that than a story about an innkeeper that had, no inn, that had no room in the inn. Even though that's part of the story of Christmas, not putting that down, this is at the crux of what Christmas is about. The innkeeper and shepherds and wise men, all that peripheral stuff, it's important, it's part of the story, it's true. But this is what Christmas is about. And in a passage, Paul is talking about generosity. If you read through 2 Corinthians 8, you'll see that. His mind immediately goes to, to Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, in the context of generosity, you think rich means money and all that. That's not what Paul's meaning. That though Jesus was rich, meaning Jesus was the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus had the supremacy. Jesus was, is, was in heaven with God before this world was ever created. The, really, the truth of this whole situation, the truth that didn't dawn on me till I was a three-year-old Christian, is that Jesus is God. That though he was rich, that though he was rich, now, how do you ex explain the fact that Jesus is God? Well, it's, it's all nestled in the mystery of the Trinity, and it's called a mystery for a reason, basically because we can't explain it. Anything that I will use to try to explain the mystery of, of one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, anything that I will try to do to give an explanation will fall short because I'm a finite creature, and I'm trying to explain the infinite. And how can a finite creature explain the infinite. But we try. Now, somebody will come up real quickly and say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You're right. It's not. But people, basically they were probably theologians, came up with this word to try to describe what the Bible was teaching. And the Bible was te teaches that we have one God, who exists in three persons. And this God is pre-existent. This, this God never came into being. This God was always there. This God didn't come into being in Genesis 1. This God has always been there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul picks that up and said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, hitting on the second person in the Trinity, that though he was rich, Though he was in heaven, though he was supreme, though he had all the supremacy, though that he had all of the majesty, though he was the Alpha and Omega in the beginning and the end, though he was rich, Christmas is about him becoming poor. There's not a better Christmas passage in all of God's words, but it's hard to flesh this out. It's hard to teach. So I think sometimes we preachers, we avoid it a little bit because how do you explain 
the Trinity as important as it is. You know, in, the, in membership class that we have here, you know, the manual in the Church of Nazarene says there's only five things you have to believe to be a Nazarene. It's, a, it's our agreed statement of faith. And the very first thing is that we believe in one God who has existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the this is just not something that we made up. The Bible teaches this in several places. Let's go to John chapter 1. And this is obviously a Christmas passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, what in the world are we talking about here? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. When was the beginning, Mark? Um, it was back there, way long time somewhere. Not Genesis 1. <laughs> okay? All right, next verse. Through him, who's him? The Word. Uh, who's the Word? Well, we're going to find that out in a second. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's pretty plain. You don't need a theology professor to explain that to you. Whoever this Word is made all things, and nothing was made that was without him. Okay, and then we jump down, verse 14, and says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Oh, ooh, we're getting a little clue how the Word is. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So this, verse, this passage in John 1, it's called the prologue. It says that he was, was God, he was with God, nothing was made uh, that was made without him. You mean Jesus wasn't like born? Jesus didn't start to exist in Bethlehem 2,000 and some odd years ago? No. Though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. Though he had the supremacy, though he was in heaven, though he was part of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, I can't really explain it. Though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. Do you know, this is fascinating, and you may have missed it. Do you know that in Genesis, in the first chapter of Genesis, when we talk about the creation of the world and all the different days and all that kind of stuff, do you know that Genesis 1, 26, when it talks about creating man in his own image, the Bible says, let us create man in his own image? Let us us create man in his own image genesis chapter 1 verse 26 god listen this 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 sounds like a th this sounds like dr john oswald or dr alan Coppich, two of my profs god is plural god you know one of the reasons that god has to be plural is because the bible says god is love and we don't think anything about that. We hear that, and that sounds nice and all that. But if God existed before he ever breathed this world into existence, which he did, no one breathed God into existence. God is just existent. It's the eternality of God. He was and is and is to come. If, if God existed, how could he be love if there was nothing to love? Because love pretty much takes a recipient. I mean, I, I think that's right. But the only way that God could be loved when he was just God with no mountains or no anything else is that if God was plural. 
And the Father's loving the Son, and the Son's loving the Father, and the Spirit's loving the Son, and the Spirit's loving the Father. God is a relationship, and that's why when we were created in His image, we're created for relationships, loving God and loving other people. It's hard stuff, isn't it? It's weird, isn't it? It really is kind of weird when you think about it. How How can you explain? How can you fathom? How can you even understand one person who exists, one being who exists in three distinct persons? And we try all kinds of weird ways to do that, okay? Now, I'm going to give you some of the weird ways we try to do that. Now, if you all... If y'all are human beings like me, you'll boo at me when I give these because these are lousy examples. But it's, it's just about as far as our finite mind can do to describe the infinite. You got water. Water can exist as a liquid. Water can exist as a liquid. Water can exist as a solid ice cube. Water can exist as steam. It's all water. It's all water. It's all it is. But there's three completely different presentations of that water. It's not three different types of water. It's all water. It's liquid, it's a solid, and it's a steam. Now, let me tell you, that is a lousy way to try to explain the Trinity. But me failing so bad in that attempt tells you the majesty of what we're trying to do here, of what we're trying to relate to and who God is. Here's another way that people have tried. I'm Mark Atherton. I'm a husband. I'm a father. And I'm a son. As long as my mom lives, obviously, I'm still a, I'm still a son, okay? I'm, I'm, uh, you all know that. I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I'm a son. It's not three marks. It's one mark. Three con- completely different roles. I don't like that word. I'm not smart enough to think of a better one. Three completely different roles. Not three marks. One mark. But sometimes he operates as a husband, and sometimes he operates as a father, and sometimes he operates as a son. Lousy way to describe the Trinity, but it's hard to do a whole lot better than that. The son, not the son, S-O-N, the son, S-U-N. I'm really going to confuse you here now, okay? The son is a ball of gas, right? If, if scientists are right, the son is a ball of gas. Okay, and the father, in trying to use this analogy to the Trinity, the father is that big ball of gas, and the rays that come down from that son, S-U-N, are the son, S-O-N. You're really lost now, aren't you? I know you are. The rays that come down are the sun, S-O-N. And the warmth that is felt from that sun is analogous to the Holy Spirit. That's lousy. But this shows you what we're dealing with here. That, that people with unbelievable amount of letters behind their names, and they can't do any better than this. This is one Brandon Hancock introduced to me. I've never heard of this one, and I'm sure, I mean, Brandon didn't come up with this. He heard this somewhere too. And this is how theologians try to, to, to explain the Trinity in some way. Uh, I took piano lessons for a year, and this is about all I remember, okay? And I just hated it because everybody else was playing football, and mom said, come in and practice your piano. So I just hated that, okay? So you've got, you've got uh, three notes. You've got a C here, which is middle C. You've got an E and you've got a G. Those are three distinct notes. But I also can play a C chord. 
Now that's, that's not three distinct notes. Those are three distinct notes. This, notes. These are C chord. But those three distinct notes make up that C chord. It's called a triad. When you hear that, you don't hear, excuse me. You hear this. I like that better than Ice Cube. <laughs> Though he was rich. Though he was the second person in the Trinity. Though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. The theology, not the story of Christmas. Story of Christmas is shepherds and, 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 uh, and, and sheep and camels lowing, whatever lowing is and all that kind of stuff. Okay, that's the story of Christmas and that's part of the deal. But I'm talking about the theology of Christmas and the theology of Christmas is found in many places, but deeply found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that I know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. There's not a deeper, more theological, more profound verse in all of God's word. The writer to the Hebrews opens the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. Right, we get that, Isaiah, Jeremiah, da-da-da-da-da. We get that. Through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son, listen, the son is the radiance of God's glory. And the, listen, and the exact representation. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's telling you, though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. Now, there's no better passage that tells us about who Jesus is than found in Colossians chapter 1. Let's go there. The Son is the image of the invisible God. We could put a period right there and there'd be nothing else there. And that's pretty self-explanatory. The son is the, uh, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created in the son. You mean the little baby? Yeah. You mean that? I thought the little baby started 2000 years. Though he was rich. For our sakes, he became poor. In heaven and, uh, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, or the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Wow. You mean, the, you mean God was in the manger? You mean those, those little pink hands, baby hands? That was God. Now, how do you explain that to people? That is some, maybe this is why Paul said it's through the foolishness of preaching. This is a, this is a weird story, friends. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he, Jesus, may have the supremacy. <laughs> well, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Remember I told you this whole this passage, 8 9, that I'm quote, quoting over and over again, is in a passage where Paul is teaching about generosity, and his mind just goes to Jesus, who gave it all. That though he was rich, for our sakes, he came down. For our sakes, he became poor. This is weird stuff. No wonder people look at us like we're nuts. And the, one of the reasons that it's such an outlandish story is one of the reasons I believe it. Because I think if you were, if you were going to make a story up, you would make it a little more believable than this. Wouldn't you? Don't you do that. I mean, when you make a story up, you put elements of truth to it so people will buy it. But nobody's ever heard of anything like this before. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, Jesus, baby, no, not baby, invisible, exact representation, created all things through him, the baby in the manger. Some weird stuff. It's kind of like a little five or six-year-old kid comes home from Sunday school. And mom says, what you learned from Sunday school? He goes, oh, we learned that Moses part of the Red Sea. Really? What'd you learn about that? How did he do that? Well, Moses got all of his super warriors together and pulled out his super radar vacuum guns. And they all pulled, pulled the trigger on these vacuum guns and they sucked all the water out. And the, and the earth was dry. And mom said, is that how this happened? And the kid goes, no, but if he really told you the whole truth, you wouldn't believe it. Because <laughs> the truth of some of this stuff is out there. And there's no more out there truth than the theology and the teaching of Christmas. The story of Christmas is not... You, you can get that, you know, and, and shepherds and angels and traveling to Bethlehem and no room in the inn and taxes and all that. That kind of comes together. But the theology of Christmas, that though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. Now, what do we mean by poor, Mark? Now, obviously, you know, we're not talking about rich, poor, money, we're what are we talking about poor, Mark? Well, when Jesus left his heavenly home, left the majesty, seated at the right hand of the throne, if, and came to this earth and started as a baby and started walking this earth, that's, that is, can you imagine his poverty that he would feel? He used to have that. And now he has this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. My theology professors call it the incarnation of Christ. Now, you don't use that word. When's the last time you used that word? You don't talk about that in the break room too much, do you? Okay? But you talk about chili con carne. 
chili con carne is chili with meat. Not just beans, meat. The incarnation of Christ is God with meat. Skin and bones. Go over to Centerville, you see a big Catholic church. Have you seen it? The Church of the Incarnation. Most people drive past that and can't even fathom what that means. We're talking about that though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. The condescension of Christ. That's what my professors, now you, you know that word condescension. I'm not saying condensation. That's two different things now, okay? The condescension of Christ. I get mad at my boys and say, would say, don't talk to me in that condescending tone if they're talking down to me, right? The condescension of Christ is when he came down. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sakes, he condescended. He left his splendor. He left his majesty. He left his heavenly home. He became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Philippians chapter 2 is the best explanation of this, probably in all of God's words, on, on the, the, the condescension of Christ, his incarnation. Talking about Jesus, who, in the, who being in the very nature God, okay, there it is. I thought Jesus was like Jesus, and God was like God. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God, though he was rich, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Other translations will say, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So though he was equal to God, he didn't consider the fact that he would let that go and come to this earth, be incarnated as a human being, he didn't think that that was something that was beneath him. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I'm talking about the incarnation of Christ. This is the theology of Christmas, friends. This is what Christmas is about. Oh, Mark, I thought it was about wise men and shepherds. Yeah, that's the story of Christmas. That's the story. This is the theology of Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. You could have a Christmas story and not have included the inn and no room and all that. You could, you could fathom something like that. That's not at the core, at the crux of what Christmas is about. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is at the core, the crux of what Christmas is all about. That though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. That's Christmas. So he, became, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's, it's, this is, um, 
This is, a, this, this is as deepest things as you'll ever ponder in life. You will never think deeper thoughts than what I'm trying to get you to think with me right now. Never will. And that's why a lot of people don't think about it because it's, just, it's, it's oh, maybe why we have to take it by faith. Because you know what? We're not going to be able to figure this one out. And we live by faith and not by sight. And it's through faith, Hebrews 12 something, that we please him. It's like, it's like God says, will you believe this? Will you just, I, I know it's hard, but will you just, will you believe this? Will you be like a little child with childlike faith? And would you believe this? We've got a lot of Christmas music. Uh, been written, obviously, through the years. Some songs endure and some songs don't endure, obviously. Um, throughout all generations, there become some songs that are, will not fade away. Because, and it's usually not because of the, the music or how beautiful the music is. It's usually because of the message that's, that song says. One of the songs that were written about Christmas, and I apologize that I did not look up the, the writer of this song, uh, Down From His Glory. This song will endure till Jesus comes because, of the, because this song is the gospel. This song is Christmas. Hark the herald angels sing. That's, it's a, tells about the story of Christmas. Down from his glory, this song tells about the true meaning, the deep, deep theology of Christmas. I've got the words up here. Down from his glory, ever living story, my God and Savior came and Jesus was his name. Born in a manger to his own, a stranger, a man of sorrows, tears, and agony. Though he was rich, for our sakes became a man of sorrows, tears, and agony. And the course says, oh, how I love him, how I adore him, my breath, my sunshine, my all in all. Here it is. The great creator became my savior. Wave your hanky on that one, friends. I'm telling you. There it is. No deeper theology ever been written in any song that could ever have been written. The great creator became my savior. And listen, and all God's fullness dwelleth in him. Some good stuff there, friends. There's some good stuff. Listen, verse. What condescension, the word I've already tried to explain. What condescension, what coming down, what condescension bringing us redemption that in the dead of night, not one faint hope in sight, God gracious, tender, here it is, laid aside his splendor. Though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. That's what we're talking about right there. Laid aside his splendor, stooping, stooping, condescension, stooping to woo, to win, to save my soul. One more verse. Without reluctance, flesh and blood, his substance. He took the form of man, revealed the hidden plan. Oh, glorious mystery. That's what I'm trying to teach. It's a mystery. It's, I admit failure. It's a mystery. 
Oh, glorious mystery. Theologians with, that are way, way smarter than me, they can't do any better than I can. Oh, glorious mystery. Oh, mystery. Oh, glorious mystery. Sacrifice of Calvary. Listen to this. And now I know thou art the great I am. <laughs> well, it don't get any better than that now, I'm telling you. This song is titled, Down From His Glory. Though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. And I'm going to show you a, a three-minute clip here. And this is of a man singing a chorus and a verse of that song. Now, his presentation of this song is kind of not Xenia, Ohio, okay? But a, a, a majestic message like this song deserves a majestic presentation. That's why I didn't ask any of y'all to sing it, because you can't sing good enough to be able to be able to sing this majestic song. Okay, listen to him sing here.
that's beautiful music. Uh, not the type of music you have every single Sunday. You probably kill a church if you have that, if have that kind of opera every single Sunday. But the song of that majesty deserves a magical, majestic type of presentation. Of, because of what? Because of who he's singing about. Down from his glory. Though he was rich, for our sakes, this is the theology of Christmas, friends. This is not the story of Christmas. This is so much deeper than shepherds and wise men and gifts. All that's well and good. I'm not putting that down at all. It's just the story. This is the real deal. This is the crux of the matter. This is the core of the matter. And Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> That though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Yes. Unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> when, when, when you really dig deep into what this really means. February 15th, 1921, Summit Hospital in New York City. There was a routine appendectomy. Dr. Evan Kane was the physician. And um, it was routine appendectomy. Dr. Kane actually, actually specialized in doing appendectomies. And, um, but one thing about this was different. This was the first time that a local anesthetic was used. Before then, everything, no matter the surgery, was really, really minor or really, really big time, they put you out, general anesthesia. And in 1921, that was a dangerous proposition to put you out. Now it's much, much safer, obviously. But Dr. Kane was trying to figure out a way that we could do more routine minor surgeries without general anesthesia and all the side effects and the dangerous stuff that came with that. And he really believed that a local anesthetic where the patient was awake could do the trick. And a lot of other doctors agreed with him, but how could they prove it? They needed a volunteer. <laughs> Who's going to volunteer for that? You sit there wide awake, and, and there you're watching him, and he's doing this and that. Didn't have any laparoscopy back then now, okay? They were just cutting, and the surgery went well. Minor discomfort. Two days later, guy's released from the hospital. The big deal about this story. <laughs> Got the picture up there. The doctor operated on himself. With, with the use of mirrors and whatnot, he operated on himself. Now, do I need to apply that? The doctor became the patient so the patient could trust the doctor. That's Christmas. Down from his glory. And obviously there's a whole lot of preaching that I've left on the table this morning because the scripture says, though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor so that we, what was the reason for Christmas? Christmas. 
for our sakes, he became poor. So that we, why did he come, Mark? For our sakes, he became poor. So that we, through his poverty, might become, why is there a Christmas, Mark? For our sakes, he became poor. So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And that's why I say usually every Christmas in some way, and just going to give a little tag at the end of this message. Jesus is not the reason for the season. You are. Though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. Every light, every tree, every gift is a reminder that he came for you. He had no reason to come. He had no reason to condescend. He had no reason to be incarnated. He had no reason to leave his splendor. He had no reason to leave his majestic home if it wasn't for a lost sinner like me and a lost sinner like you. I know you don't like this, and I know it rubs against you, almost like fingernails on a blackboard, but you are the reason for the season. You are the reason for the season. There's no other biblical explanation for it. He didn't need to leave. There needed to be no reason for Christmas if there was not me, a dirty, rotten sinner, and there was not you. Christmas is about us. Dr. Maxie Dunham, the president of Asbury Seminary, told us one day, he said, Mark, y'all got, no, he didn't tell me, he told the class. He said, y'all got to believe the truth about yourself no matter how good it is. Think about that one for a second. So that's why every single Sunday we finish at the table because it's always about his coming. And in this message, it was about his coming down, his condescension, leaving his splendor. God was in the manger for you and for me. Can our servers come to the table, please? Father, I just, every time I try to preach this, I fall short because I cannot explain this unbelievable story. I can just tell it. I cannot explain the Trinity and condescension and leaving your splendor. I cannot I cannot figure it out, and if I can't figure it out myself, there's no way that I can be able to explain it to anyone else. So, Father, I pray that you do, by your grace and through your Holy Spirit, what I can't do, you will apply to these people's hearts. And I pray for that one person, those five, those ten, that have never really understood, and today they will accept the only payment for their sins. And that's the blood of the majestic one, the one who left his splendor, the one who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. Help us now during this time of communion in Jesus' name. Amen.